Hello, hello, hello. My name is Courtney Turner, and you are listening to Bluegrass Community Foundation's Do Good Radio Hour. Happy Halloween! I know that it's tomorrow. But we have never been so close than we are right now. So to celebrate the spooky season, we are throwing it back to 2022 and revisiting one of my favorite episodes of the Do Good Radio Hour ever. Today, we are walking through some of the spookiest stories in Lexington's history, and we hope that you have a very safe and pretty spooky Halloween. Here again is Dr. Jonathan Coleman. Jonathan, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween, Court. This is so exciting. In reality, we're recording this a few weeks before Halloween, but the spooky vibes are already right. deep we in my bones. We are in the spirit. We are there. I'm so excited. Now, I've been looking forward to this episode for the longest because <laughs> I've got a little spooky spirit. I'm really excited to be talking to you. But before we get into all of the, the spooks and things, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us... A, just a smidge about what you do, because I know that you have a thousand things happening all the time. <laughs> well, I'm Dr. Jonathan Coleman. I'm a historian, and I'm the executive director of the Bluegrass Trust for Historic Preservation. Fantastic. Now, what does what do you do there, and what does that organization do as a whole? Right. So the Bluegrass Trust for Historic Preservation is actually one of the nation's oldest preservation groups. So they've been around since the 1950s, long before preservation was uh, the movement that it is today. And basically, we are a resource for Central Kentuckians, all communities in Central Kentucky that are looking to protect, promote, revitalize our special historic places. What are some of the coolest projects that you've had your hand in recently? Oh, that is a good question. I mean, there's so many. So the trust itself does steward a few properties. Hopemont, which we actually saved in 1955, is the property that got us started. It's right there on Gratz Park in Lexington. We are also the steward of Pope Villa, which is um, a federal villa near UK's campus, sort of tucked away designed by Benjamin Latrobe, mm. uh, the nation's first professional architect. Um, but we also help um, other groups, other communities protect and revitalize their buildings. So we 
shine spotlights. We help raise funds. One of the properties that we're working on here in Lexington is the Palmer Pharmacy um, in the east side of town, mm-hmm. home to an extraordinarily important uh, civil rights activist, great mid-century modern building. So really fun, the jobs I get to do. Tell me what it means to get in and preserve a building. So what are we, are we looking at? You know, painting the walls? Are we talking about redoing flooring or bringing it back to what its original flooring was? What does that look like for you all? These are deep philosophical questions, Courtney. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just here to tell ghost stories. I'm but, so uh, <laughs> but no, it's a wonderful question, Courtney. And so preservation can be those things, right? It can really be about the physical building itself. But for me, preservation is about not necessarily saving a door or a floor uh, or a window or mm-hmm. whatever. It's about saving a sense of community and a sense of place. So preservation in and of itself is about um, being good stewards of our resources. So the things that help connect us to uh, the environment that's around us in all kinds of ways, either through our history, through human scale, through even the environment. Uh, Preservation, uh, an important new field and how preservationists are thinking. Um, is about how preservation serves as a way to combat climate change, Mm. right? The greenest building that you can build is the one that's already standing. Um, And so preservation, while it has that physical component, it's about um, community ties. It's about sense of place. It's about equity and justice. It's about the environment. Um, What excites me about preservation is how it can encompass all of those various aspects to enrich the lives of Kentuckians everywhere. How did you get started in this? So I am an academically trained historian. As I joke at work all the time, I'm not a preservationist, right? (laughs) So that is, preservation is um, a very sophisticated field full of wonderful preservationists. So I'm a historian. So the PhD, the doctor and Dr. Coleman is a PhD in history. And of course, historic preservation and history, we sing... uh, different verses of the same song, Uh, very interested in the way that the past, right, is felt within the present and how it helps to us interpret uh, where our future may lie. Um, And so as an academic historian, I've always been interested in public history, um, history outside of the classroom. So not teaching Mm -hmm. at a college or anything like that or Um, So how do we share these stories? How do we save them? How do we celebrate them with people who may never enter um, the campus of a university, um, but yet realize and have a need for um, a way to think about their own pasts uh, and the way that those pasts influence the lives they're leading right Mm now? Mm -hmm. Now, I do want to get into... The spooky. (laughs) Now, I know that you have had historical tours. Yes. Can we call them ghost tours? Do you call them ghost tours? Well, they weren't really ghost tours. So when I was, it started in grad school. So I haven't done these for a few years now, Mm -hmm. but it's one of the ways that I really got to learn Lexington. Uh, It was basically going around uh, doing a lot of research into uh, local Lexington history and then listening to stories, mm. stories that people tell and pass down. Um, and so I did have uh, a little walking tour gig that I did for a few years. Um, also, you it, dressed up. 
And I did, yes. I wore a top hat. It was great. (laughs) A red cravat. Um, I always joke it got to be my alter ego for a little while. And so it was more about uh, ghosts, spirits, weird happenings. But if you started to unpack those stories, and I only had two rules for the stories. Um, They had to be Lexington-based in the past. Right. It wasn't, you know, my grandma lives in this house here and sure. weird things happen to her. So they had to have been based in the past and I couldn't have made them up. <laughs> that was the <laughs> other thing. Right. That I had to have historical evidence that people have been telling this story for mm-hmm. a while. Um, and when you started to unpack that ghost stories, the way that I approach them and I don't believe in ghosts. I'm sorry to Which tell is so you. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, it's always a bummer. I wish I did. Like, I really do wish that I did believe in ghosts, but I do believe in ghost stories. Okay. And I do believe that ghost stories are a wonderful way that human beings for centuries, millennia even, uh, ghosts, this idea of the past being present, right? Being able to access where we are right now. Um, is a wonderful way that human beings have dealt with interpreting their own histories uh, for thousands of years now. And ghost stories are, by their very nature, based in the past, right? It's dead people. Right. <laughs> they are no longer R. here. Mm-hmm. And so like any myth, like any folklore, ghost stories become ways right, that we um, tell people things that have happened where we interpret the things that have happened. And they're always couched in, uh, like any historical anecdote, they're always couched within uh, the society in which those stories are being told. They always reflect the fears, the hopes, the dreams, the complications Mm. of uh, human beings in that moment in time. And so they're fascinating historical artifacts in and of themselves. Before we get into these stories, I do want to add, it's so interesting that you don't believe in ghosts. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. This is the best. But when you were doing these tours and you were telling these stories, do you ever feel like a, you know, when people talk about when you watch like ghost hunters or something, they always talk about there's a heaviness in the room or like they feel something. Do you feel that or do you look at it from kind of like a preservation standpoint of like I'm telling the story? No, I never felt I never felt a presence or any sort of supernatural (laughs) experience. No, that never happened. But you often did feel something. Mm -hmm. And it's the same way I argue when you hear any good story. Right. There is that sense of storytelling and what it does. Human beings tell stories for a reason. Right. They do things for us. And so a a well-told story should pull on heartstrings. Right. It should make people think in ways that reading facts and figures can't. Right. Um, And so if you do it well and if you're tapping in to things like people's fears of death, Uh, people's thoughts about how they themselves will be remembered, people um, interacting with their own thoughts, biases, prejudices of the past, um, sometimes their own romanticization of the past. Um, And when you're getting to talk about those things and share those things and experience with other human beings, you should feel something. So goosebumps uh, were totally a good thing, and they did happen. 
Well, I am so excited to get some goosebumps today. <laughs> As a disclaimer, I've never heard these stories before, so oh, I'm very well, excited. Tell me something boo good, John. <laughs> well, I have several really favorite um, spooky off-the-wall mm. uh, Lexington stories. Um, and the one that I always like to start with is actually one that I'm very close to, and that is the ghost of none other than Mary Todd Lincoln, Lexington's mm. first lady. Of mm-hmm. course, she was born here uh, in the early 1800s, uh, moves away in the late 1830s, and as you know, <laughs> Mary's a future president. Things don't work out. It's mm. a rather tragic life. Old Abe. And, oh, poor old Abe. Uh, and poor old Mary. And so the story goes that there is this house on 2nd Street. And the house was once occupied by a teacher she had as a little girl. His name was John Ward. He was actually a minister at the Episcopal Church here. Uh, And John Ward was uh, a pretty provocative educator. He believed in something no one else at the time believed in. He believed in co-education. Boys and girls going to school together. Go on, John. Uh, Exactly. (laughs) Um, And so Mary went there as a young girl. In fact, the school still stands. It's in Gratz Park. It's called the Ridgely House now. Um, And Mary, we know, was extraordinarily well-educated, especially for a woman of her time. And she will go on uh, to spend... Um, at least 10 years in formal education, maybe as many as 12, almost unheard of for a woman's education. And I think a lot of that had to be instilled not only by her family, but those early years with John Ward. A good uh, comparison is her husband, who went to school for less than two years altogether when he was growing up. Um, So the story goes that Mary, now Mary Lincoln, uh, it's 1847, And they are visiting here. And we know that happened. We know Abraham and Mary were here uh, in the fall of 1847. Mm -hmm. In fact, about this time of the year. Um, And the story goes that she walked the couple of blocks from her parents' home up uh, to Reverend Ward's and introduced uh, him to her husband. Uh, And that Reverend Ward, of course, said, you know, that man's going to make something of himself. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that visit in 1847 must have been um, one of the happiest times in Mary's life. So they are not uh, visiting Lexington just to be visiting Lexington. They have left Illinois. They're on their way to Washington. Uh, Lincoln has been elected to his first and what would end up being his only term in Congress. So Mary is back in her hometown for the first time. She's a young wife. She's a young mother. And she is married to a Whig uh, congressman who got elected on Henry Clay's ticket. So and she was, he's tall. <laughs> and he's very tall. So no doubt she was proud as a peacock. Um, and of course, we know Mary's life will not be one remembered as a happy one. Um, she and Lincoln will go on to have four children. She will bury three of those children during her lifetime. Uh, she'll be sitting beside her husband when he shot through the back of the head. Uh her one remaining child would put her against her will into an insane asylum towards the end of her life. It's a very tragic story. Um, And so as the myth goes, Mary still shows up in that house on second street, the home of her former teacher, um, always smiling. Uh, Supposedly there is a tower right on the corner um, and supposedly she can be seen in that window from time Mm -hmm. to time. Um, 
and the previous residents, I haven't been back there in a couple of years, the previous residents always kept a light on, uh, supposedly just in case the first lady showed up. Uh, now, the thing about Mary Todd Lincoln, it's fascinating how famous people have a high percentage rate of becoming ghosts. Right. Uh, <laughs> there are actually three houses in Lexington that claim to be haunted by Mary Todd Lincoln. She's a busy lady. She is a very busy lady. It's glad to see that she's still getting around here in her old hometown. It's finally October, and we have a spooktacular opportunity to show your do-good false spirit. It's the Boo Good Challenge, and you can find all of the info on our Facebook and Instagram at BGCFKY. To enter the Boo Good Challenge, simply take a photo of your favorite fall do-good activity. Maybe that's carving pumpkins with neighbors or donating your time to costume drives. Maybe that's participating in a fall philanthropy event this month or simply making your favorite soup to share on a spooky movie night. However you are planning to boo good, take a photo and tag us at BGCFKY using the hashtag BooGood. That's B-O-O-G-O-O-D. At the end of this month, we will enter all of our entries into a drawing for a special boo good basket full of some of our favorite local fall necessities. We can't wait to see how you are spending this boo good season. So, Mary is here. Mary's here. There is another story that takes us to a campus ah, in yeah. Lexington. What are we talking about? So university campuses are notorious for being hotbeds of ghost stories mm -hmm. um, and legends and myths. There's something about, you know, the students who are there for about four years. So there's a huge turnover in experienced memory. So you get all of these stories. It's um, so historians, folklorists who actually study ghost stories, um, campus communities are really good at generating them. Right. And one of the most famous in all of Lexington is, of course, at Transylvania. And that is not really a ghost, uh, per se. It's more of a curse. Oh. And that is, so it's still active, right? It's still with us. Um, and that is the curse of Constantine Rafinesque. It's a great name. Very good name. So he was born in Istanbul, um, late 1700s. He is no doubt a genius. No doubt a genius. Um, could um, read over a dozen languages. Uh, and he gets attracted uh, to Transylvania University when it's really at the height of its very early fame. Uh, so Horace Holly is here um, as president. This was, of course, it was a men-only institution, white-only institution, uh, but you had uh, the prominent men, especially in the West, um, west of the Appalachian Mountains, their family sent them to Transylvania. Uh, so you had folks like Andrew Jackson, his adopted sons went to Transylvania. Uh, folks like Jefferson Davis, who would one day be president of the Confederacy, he went to Transylvania. So an extraordinarily elite school and Raffiness gets drawn in to uh, teach um, the natural sciences, mm. I guess you would call them. And he was obviously uh, very smart, but also a little strange. <laughs> um, so there are stories about his um, 
his pedagogical approach, uh, one that he just couldn't be bothered with it. He didn't mm. actually like to teach. You know, why he was attracted to the Wild West of Kentucky uh, is because of its many natural resources. So, you know, he would name thousands of new plants and animals during his time. The Raffinesque bat, which is now the symbol of Transylvania University, of course, he named it. Um, and uh, he was probably also working on a very early form uh, of the theory of evolution when he died. Mm. In fact, we know Charles Darwin would read some of Raffinesque's work. Oh, very cool. Uh, but he was um, not a very good teacher. Wonderful <laughs> researcher, not a great teacher. So supposedly he didn't show up for lectures most of the time. But when he did, that was even worse. He apparently had this great coat, according to one story, that he had made himself full of all of these pockets so that when he saw a plant, an animal he didn't recognize, he could grab it, shove it in a pocket, you know, dispatch with it, and study it later. It's and, kind of like Newt Scamander. <laughs> something I like, love like that. It's this really, you can just imagine physically, if this is true, what he would have looked like, mm. what he would have smelled like. Yikes. Um, you know, full of dead animals <laughs> in his pockets. Um, and that he was so smart, and he was... Um, so esoteric and that he was virtually um, impossible to understand for the students. So he didn't have a particularly good reputation, except for maybe with Horace Holly's wife. Um, and this oh. is where it gets a little complicated, too. There were rumors, um, or there have been rumors since, um, that Horace Holly's wife uh, and Constantine Raffinesse may have had a romance. Whatever the case is, Horace Holly dismisses Constantine Raffinesque. He has to go. Um, but before he left, Raffinesque wrote that he put a curse on Horace mm -hmm. and the university itself. Uh, poor Raffinesque, he won't be long for this world. He goes up to Philadelphia. He passes away. Uh, he's a pauper. He's thrown into an unmarked grave. And it seems then that his curse goes into effect. Horace Holly doesn't get to stay very long at Transy, and Horace, I believe, dies uh, of yellow fever on a boat on the way to New Orleans. And then Transylvania itself, Old Morrison, every seven years, according to one story, or within a certain set of circumstances happened um, in another. Um, but typically what you hear, it's every seven years. Every seven years, Old Morrison, which would have been the college as a whole during Raffinesque Day, uh, would burn to the ground. Oh and it was the curse gosh. of Raffinesque. We do know that was the case. The original Transylvania did burn to the ground. Uh, and they built that beautiful Greek mm -hmm. revival building now at the head of Gratz Park. Uh, and that it was a constant problem. And so someone had the very bright idea of going to Philadelphia exhuming the body of Constantine Raffinesque and burying him in the middle of Old Morrison. Stop. And that is where Constantine Raffinesque is right now. Supposedly. there, I did hear one story that there was an anthropologist. They were doing some work there at Old Morrison. Um, and there was an anthropologist who had a chance to actually uh, look at the body and believe the body was actually the body of a female. Uh, that they might have dug up the wrong person and buried okay. them in Old Morrison. But that, that does comes with seem, its own thing. That comes with its own thing. Uh, so, like I said, he was actually buried in an unmarked grave in Philadelphia. And so they believe they really did just dig up the wrong person and bury them thinking it was Raffinesque. Um, the, uh, but that seems to have 
calmed Raffinus curse having his body or at least the thought of (laughs) at least the thought (laughs) right uh of someone's body there in old morrison uh, and that started a little group on campus called the Raffinesque Society. Oh. And so it was a very big deal to be a member of the Raffinesque Society. And so they picked four lucky freshmen. Um, and if you were picked, you got to go into the crypt of Constantine Raffinesque and keep watch overnight. And if you made it to morning, you were a member of the Raffinesque Society. Okay, this is my campaign. I'm not a freshman. I don't go to Transy. I'm interested. So if at any point in time anybody wants to invite me, right. I'm available. I have met two members of the Raffinesque Society. So oh, I'm going to say I'm not making it around. into the society. I'm chickening out, but I want to go in there real bad. Oh, yeah, you could go into the crypt. Like, it's pretty easily accessible. So if you're looking at Old Morrison, there are those great steps. In fact, they just preserved them. Mm-hmm. They did a wonderful job. And beside the steps are these two blocks. They, they're called antipodia is oh. their architectural term. The one to the left is actually the crypt of Raffinesque. And inside the building, you can actually access the crypt. So it's a large room. It's like a tomb. And then within it is an above ground tomb for Raffinesque. What if I told you there was a way that you could participate in a super simple, super exciting online giving challenge that this year alone will help support over 200 nonprofits in Central and Appalachia, Kentucky? What if I told you you would be participating in a record-breaking year for philanthropic giving at Bluegrass Community Foundation? I'm telling you, you need to get ready for the Good Giving Challenge, kicking off Giving Tuesday, November 29th, and ending December 2nd, because it's going to be a week of giving you don't want to miss. Visit bggives.org to see how you can help local organizations grow and thrive going into 2023. That's bggives.org. All right, Jonathan. One more story. Hit us with something good. What do you got? Yeah, I've got, in fact, I haven't even told the one that I think is the most fascinating. So, okay. you know, these are just fun little stories. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I was telling you, um, why I'm interested as a historian in ghost stories is what they convey, what the stories themselves convey about our past. And so the oldest ghost story when I was compiling my tour, the oldest ghost story I could find, in fact, this story has been told, I know at least since 1920, actually is told about Hopemont, which is uh, the first building that the Bluegrass Trust saved back in 1955. And it sits um, right there on the edge of Gratz Park, uh, built by Kentucky's first millionaire for his family, John Wesley Hunt. And it is the story of a woman... um, named Bouvette James, sometimes more colloquially called Mambat or Aunt Betty. And so the story goes, uh, and we know that Bouvette James was a real person. Bouvette James is buried in Lexington Cemetery with the Hunt Morgan family. Uh, We know she was born enslaved in Virginia. uh, And we know uh, that John Wesley purchased her sometime during her life, brought her to Kentucky and enslaved her here. So we do know she is a real person. Human she being. is a real person. And so the story goes, uh, and like I said, the earliest I can find it in print is about 1920. Mm-hmm. I assume it was being told before then. So another branch of the Hunt Morgan family 
in the late 1800s had moved into Hopemont, the old family house. Um, and there was a, um, um, a sick little boy um, up in the nursery, and they had hired a nurse to watch him overnight. The nurse falls asleep somewhere deep in the night, and she wakes to the sound of humming. Um, the song isn't coming from the baby's crib. There is a figure in the nursery. Um, the figure seems to take notice that the nurse is now awake, simply turns, walks away, and disappears. Mm. Um, the baby takes a turn for the worse, and by the morning, that child is gone. Mm. Um, the nurse doesn't know what to tell the family, what she saw, what she heard that night. But she eventually gets up the courage to go to the mother and say, the night that your son died in the nursery, I saw something. Um, and she describes the humming. Uh, she describes the figure she saw. It was blurry. It was fast. She was scared. And that the only description she had was that the ghost was wearing a pair of red leather shoes. Mm, fashion. The <laughs> and what was famous, and at this, the mother was greatly comforted because she knew exactly wearing the red leather shoes who that was. That was Bouvette James. <gasps> Bouvette James always wore a pair of red leather shoes, and only the family would have known that. Um, and so the story goes, whenever there was trouble, whenever there was a... Um, a dark cloud hanging over Hopemont that Bouvette James would make her presence there known somehow, some way, and that she was always sort of watching over um, the old Hopemont. And so this is a story, like I said, that dates back to 1920 or right. so. It's pretty old for a ghost story. Um, but what's fascinating is about what this ghost story means, mm -hmm. right? Why are people in 1920 telling a story um, about an enslaved woman like Bouvette James or Mambet. And of course, who's telling that story? Um, so what do we actually know about Bouvette James? Like I said, we know she was born in Virginia. We know she was enslaved by the Hunt Morgan family. Um, she was uh, apparently a nurse, um, a caretaker um, of the Hunt and later the Morgan children. We know she dies a few years after the Civil War, uh, so she would have been a freed woman by that time. Uh, and she's buried with the Hunt Morgan family uh, in Lexington Cemetery. In fact, on her tombstone, uh, it says, Bouvette James, ever faithful. But by the 1920s, right, white people in Kentucky are remembering the Civil War in a very different way. It's not surprising Right, that you're getting stories like Gone with the Wind that will pop up mm. very close to the story of Bouvette James watching over Hopemont. Um, Bouvette James, we actually know a lot about her as an individual uh, because um, of a member of that family called Basil Duke. Uh, now, Basil Duke was a Confederate. Basil Duke fought for the continuation of the enslavement of people like Bouvette James. And then after the war, he survives it. And he writes all of these romanticized stories mm -hmm. about what the South was like before the war. So he rode with John Hunt Morgan, his brother-in-law, 
um, he ended up becoming a really um, important Confederate officer. And then after the war, um, he becomes a state elected official for Kentucky and a judge and that sort of thing. Um, and he spends a great deal of his time writing these romanticized stories like um, the Southern Bouviac. And he tells lots and lots of anecdotes about Bouvet James, but they're all very stereotypical. In fact, many historians even point back to this sort of social idea of the mammy mm. as coming from Basil Duke telling these stereotyped stories about Bouvet James. Mm. Um, and so those stories that Basil Duke has already told about Bouvet James just love the family, right? She was a member of our family. When she died, um, you know, all of the boys carried her out. Now, they don't talk about, you know, the fact that she had her own family, right? Her own blood relations, right? right? They don't talk about the fact that by the time uh, she would have been uh, emancipated from enslavement, she would have been too old to go anywhere else. You know, mm -hmm. she would have been a woman in her 70s by that point. What do you do? You know, she would have been... Um, prevented from having an education, even though there was a university literally in her front yard. Right. Um, and so in the 1920s, when you have this romanticization of the Old South, it's not surprising that you get a ghost story like Bouvet James. Mm -hmm. So think about really how horrific this is. So this is a woman who's been enslaved most of her life until the very end. And even in the afterlife, right, white people are claiming that she is still in that house, right? right? That she is still serving them in some sort of way because she just loves it, right? right. Because she wants to be there. Mm. And you can see in the 1920s, as white people are rethinking the Civil War, you know, that Civil War generation was dying out. It was now just memory mm -hmm. as opposed to lived experience. And so you see this all over the place. Uh, white folks thinking about the Old South that way and especially romanticizing slavery, um, and you see it, you know, in that ghost story from the 1920s about Bouvet James mm -hmm. still watching over Hopemont. So it's fascinating, right, that that ghost story that's been told, you know, I remember hearing it myself uh, when I first moved to Lexington, but how that ghost story really tells us, right, about how people were thinking about a horrible institution, about how they were trying to romanticize that institution um, and how those ways of dealing with the past still stick with us, mm -hmm. right? They're still impacting the way we think about the past today. That is so wild. Yeah. Do you ever think about, and I don't even know if I'm going to put this in the show. I'm genuinely just curious. Do you ever think about what kind of ghost stories are going to come from this generation? I do, yeah. What do you think that might look like? I don't know, um, because the ghost stories that will come from this generation will be stories that reflect uh, the fears, the concerns right, mm. of the next. That's the way they always work. Right. Right. Um, I think it will be, you know, I think even our own way that we tell ghost stories are so are so dependent upon certain things right the intersections of certain identities race gender social class um, where you're physically located um, and so that's a really it's a really complicated thing because once again you know I don't believe uh, that the ghost stories necessarily reflect the time right upon, upon which those things were happening right uh, what they really reflect 
uh, are the times of the storytellers themselves, right? They're telling these stories for a reason. Are you ever going to do the tours again? Or no, are you done with that? probably not. Like it's, um, I've always said if anyone, uh, it's rife. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it was always really fun. And my life just got too busy, honestly. You know, I finished up grad school. Right. Um, and it was just something I had to let go. But it's fun to revisit it. Yeah. You know, it's fun to, and it's part, you know, the bigger work um, that I do as a historian um, and in my role at the Bluegrass Trust, you know, because it's these um, grappling with the past, thinking about the past, thinking about how our communities today, right, they come from somewhere, right? We just don't show up on the stage. Right, right? yeah. There is, uh, there is a context, and that is our history. Um, and so, and that is what preservation has a particularly, uh, is particularly powerful in helping us do, mm. right, is to think through, because one of the reasons why we can think about Bouvet James, right, and we can think about that ghost story, and then we can actually go and explore, well, who was she, right? She was a real individual. What was her life like? And we can find her in the actual records, right? It's no longer Basil Duke that gets to tell her story, right? It's no longer these people hoping to, you know, romanticize a terrible past that get to tell it, right? Um, Historians, activists, preservationists today, right, we can go back and we can actually find her in the record and we can tell a more balanced and a more accurate tale about her life and we can think about it. Um, And so, and that's the beauty, right, of preservation is we also have the building, right? We also have the space itself, right? right? I can walk in, right, and I can touch the doorknobs Mm -hmm. that Bouvette James would have touched, right? I can walk the floors. I can go into that nursery, uh, where she would have spent so much of her life, and that ghost story uh, was later created. Um, and that sense of place um, is extraordinarily important mm. to a community's identity. Mm. Man, you're the coolest. Oh, well, thank you're you. The coolest. You're the coolest, Courtney. Oh, thanks. Okay, we are going to go into our BGCF Fast facts, which is where I give you a question, and without thinking about it too deep, you're going to give me the first thing that pops up. Will do. Are you ready? I am ready. What are you reading right now? I am reading two things right now. Fundraising for Social Change, uh, Lark Ascending by Silas House. Love it. What are you watching right now? I am watching... Uh, my favorite YouTuber, Reading the Past with Dr. Cat. Shout out Dr. Cat. Dr. Cat. So she is a British historian. All she does is tutors. It's comp- she's a fantastic historian. The tutors have no relevance in my real life. So sure. it's just a wonderful thing to watch. Every Friday night she releases it. That's why you never see me anywhere on Fridays. <laughs> We're spending time with Dr. Cat. I'm spending my Don't evening call. with Dr. Cat. <laughs> What are you listening to right now? I am listening to an Appalachian singer named Tiffany Williams. Her new album, um, All Those Days of Drinking Dust. Mm -hmm. It's very good. What are you eating right now? I'll probably have some chicken salad after this. Oh, delicious. Where where do you get your chicken salad? (laughs) It's this lady um, who lives on the south side of town, and she just delivers chicken salad to me every Sunday. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, her name's Tasha. I call her Tasty Tasha. Hey, Tasty Tasha. Um, I don't know if you're listening, but I love chicken salad, so call me. <laughs> what are you most scared of? Not ghosts. Not ghosts. 
Hmm. What am I most, I guess, failure, a generalized sense of failure. What are you most proud of? What am I most, my nonprofit work, Mm -hmm. getting to feel like I make a change. Yeah. Who do you look up to? Hmm. So many people. Like there are so many individual reasons to look up. Uh, You know, I don't believe in uh, an individual sense of exceptionalism. Um, like I've never really sort of felt that way because human beings are too messy. Um, that I am always inspired by the by the ubiquity of exceptionalism in human beings. Mm, we all have beautiful. it somewhere. Yeah. yeah. What are you most looking forward to? Christmas, probably. Mm. Big Christmas fan. Why do you love our community? I love that it is small and interconnected in many ways. Um, But it is also wide and large and diverse and encompasses so much. Lexington has a lot going for it. Why do you love yourself? Well, I mean, you've met me. So (laughs) what's What's not not to love? love? (laughs) (laughs) That's the best. No, what I sh- oh, it's radio. What I should have said, yes. well, you've seen me. Now, right, yes. You know what I look at now. I'm playing. I'm not that narcissistic. I love it. <laughs> Last question, Jonathan. Where can people find you? What do you have going on? How can people learn more about Bluegrass Trust? Give us all the goods. Oh, sure. So the Bluegrass Trust, like I said, is a resource for all Central Kentuckians looking to protect, promote, revitalize their special historic places in any sense. So we're always here to help. Um, If that's, you know, finding you some funds, finding you some historic tax credits, there are lots of ways that we can help assist you. Um, So the trust always has its ongoing resources programming. We also do special events where we highlight some of these stories. Uh, The first Wednesday of every month is our detours. In fact, uh, the first um, Wednesday in November, we are doing a detour of uh, Cadentown, which is one of these historic black rural communities uh, in Fayette County that used to dot the outer side of the community. This one's really fascinating. It has a a uh, Washington Rosenwald school Mm. that is still um, standing. So come join us for that. There is so much history here um, in Fayette County, and the detours actually go all across uh, the Bluegrass region. Uh, We are also in the middle of our Hopemont Lecture Series, which we do during the winter. Uh, The Hopemont Lecture Series is named after that first property that we saved in 1955, and it focuses on diverse innovative Kentucky storytellers and Kentucky stories. Um, And so our next one is in November. It's Kevin Derringer. Um, He is uh, giving a talk called The uh, Best One Night Stand in America, Theatrical History of Lexington. Uh, (laughs) So it'll be a really fascinating way to think about the past through public performance, public art Mm. um, in the city. Amazing. Thank you so much for you, joining me today. We and really appreciate some, it. Some spooky vibes. Yeah, I, I hope it, it made you think about your Halloween maybe a little differently. Yes. Do you yeah. have Halloween plans? I don't. Okay. No. Yeah, me either. Maybe I live in an 1830s house, so maybe I will just 
stick around and Maybe see if my mind will experience. change. Oh, Maybe this will be it. <laughs> Come back soon and visit us, please. Sure will. Thanks, Jonathan. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Do Good Radio Hour, brought to you by Bluegrass Community Foundation. We'll be back next week right here on Radio Lex, or you can listen to us anytime on Apple Podcasts. In the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at BGCFKY, or visit us on our website at BGCF.org to stay updated on all of the latest giving and do-good opportunities in our community. Until next time, I'm Courtney Turner. Do good and be well. You are listening to the Do Good Radio Hour on Radio Lex, WLXU 93.9 LPFM Lexington. Our theme song is Happy Tune, written and performed by Brother Smith. The views expressed on this podcast are not necessarily the views of Radio Lex, its board of directors, or Bluegrass Community Foundation. The views expressed are solely my own and the guests'.